Lovely to see you. I'm Jason, senior pastor here with my wife, Bev. Um, she's not here this morning. We're in, on holiday down in Kent. Got to drive back to be with you this morning, enjoying the sunshine. Um, the English summer, eh? When the, when, the, when the summer gives, it gives. And when it takes away, it takes away. But this is definitely one to receive the sunshine. Um, I'm, I'm a bit conflicted. I feel like I should be praying for rain, but glad it's not. Um, and if you've been on holiday, hope you've had a good holiday. If you're about to go on holiday or another one, hope you have a good one. Um, so bless you. But this, we've been having a wonderful time the last few weeks. We're in a new series called Stranger Things. And the premise for this series, um, for these few weeks, is that there are parts of the Bible that can be very strange and then we can avoid them. And then we end up just dealing with certain parts of the Bible and have what's called a limited canon. But instead, actually, if we wrestle with and grapple with some of the stranger things in the Bible, there's a lot to be revealed to us and explained to us that God has for us. And we've had um, a wonderful series. So just recently, so we had, um, and if you have been enjoying them or you've missed all of them, please go online. You can listen to them all. So um, we had Lorraine helping us understand angels. That was fun, wasn't it? And then we had Sam last week with all the different kinds of Moses. I've been singing VeggieTales songs all week since last Sunday, Sam. Uh, we had a, a, a very powerful time last Sunday. Um, and Sam looked at a passage where God wants to kill Moses and his um, non-Jewish wife circumcises their son in the middle of the night and throws his foreskin at Moses. You don't get stranger than that, do you? But Sam did a wonderful job of showing us what all that means. <laughs> Uh, and was no encouragement for anyone to do that in the life of the congregation. But we've been having a wonderful time. And we come today to, um, as I was praying and getting ready for today, um, Acts, Tongues of Fire. Now, if you're a Christian, it, you're just familiar with it, Tongues of Fire. But Tongues of Fire appearing out of nowhere over people's heads is a really strange thing. Why that? And about two-thirds of what I want to share with you this morning, we're going to use a lot of Bible this morning. I'm, in my preparation for this morning, very indebted to one of my um, professors, a big influence on in my life, Leonard Sweet. Go online, buy all his books, um, listen to his podcasts. And um, he's a particular specialist in what's called semiotics. And I remember when I first met him over 20 years ago, Jason, trust the images of Scripture the metaphors of scripture, follow them. There's lots of ways we can work through the Bible on themes or words or topics. But again and again, you see and in many of the stranger things in the Bible, there are often images. Go through scripture and look for them. And that's one of the things I've done in preparation for today. And there are so many images, multi-sensory things happening in this passage that to understand them, we need to go through the Bible and see other times when these types of images occur to understand. Because especially for the Jewish people, that, they were steeped in this. They recreated this. They knew, their, they knew the, the Hebrew Bible well. And it was like, oh my goodness, this is all these things we've seen and heard before. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Two-thirds, so that I hope, whenever you read, here's my hope this morning. If you read this passage in Acts 2 again, you won't be able to read it in the same way ever again after today. And you'll see and want to go through scripture to see the other connections. And a third of what we do will be the so what. How the Holy Spirit wants to fill us and baptize us. Anybody like to be filled with the Holy Spirit this morning? The Lord's been turning up here wonderfully. We had such a special. I mean, how we get from Moses and foreskins thrown at someone's feet 
to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we had here last week in worship and ministry. Um, God is faithful and wonderful with his word. So, um, and I would encourage you, I just want to encourage you about Bibles. I know all the verses appear up here. I just, again, I felt a little nudge from the Lord says, you get a Bible. I hope you've got one. Bring it here. Write in it. Underline the verses that God speaks to you about. Let it be a journal for what God does with you. I know it's on our phones and it's on the screen, but it is not the same as having a relationship with it as God's word. And so do, you know, find a Bible. There are so many Bibles now. I can go and bring one with you. So, background stories. Pentecost is the birth of the church. Um, There's no countdown on the screen up there, which is very dangerous for me. Otherwise, we might be here till 2 o'clock. Hey, there we go. Thank you. Um, Oh, 11.30. Time to finish. No, it doesn't. It says 10.46. Pentecost is the birth of the church. Any of you know your Bible? But Pentecost was a thing before Pentecost. It was a festival. And it's the birth of the church. And to understand this story, we need to know some of the backstories to this story. Now, I've mentioned before, and I hope you know this, that one of the ways to understand the Bible is it's not one book. It's 66 books. It's poetry. It's gospels. It's apocalyptic. Um, It's history. It's many things. And to understand the Bible, you need to understand the different books of the Bible and how they came together and why. And that's true. But I want you to do something else this morning as we approach the Bible. The Bible is all of God's word. It might be 66 things, but it inheres together. It's his story of his work with people. And the reason it's 66 books in different ways, it's written over a long period of time, and it's the expression of God engaging with us through the poetic, through history, through the Gospels, through the apocalyptic, through the prophetic, through the Psalms, through worship. And and the metaphor here for getting into these backstories I want to share with you is DNA. I mean, we all know about DNA now, don't we? But there was a time when we didn't. But one hair on your head be difficult for me if there was a crime to find a hair. But anyway, um, to link me to it, it'd be a very short hair. Um, but your hair contains your DNA. You know, a piece of your skin. And your DNA contains within it, one little part of you contains all of the coding for the rest of you. You all know that about DNA? And in some ways with the Bible, yes, it's 66 books, but when we reach into and find a bit where God does something, it's got so much built into it, like it's DNA. To understand it, it shows us something about the rest of Scripture. Some of you may have seen that there are images online. This has popped into my head, and I I could have got it, if I had it in advance, could have put it on screen. There is a way that Scripture refers to itself through history that is, is unbelievable. And there's someone have done visuals for the different ways that Scripture quotes itself and refers to itself. And that's part of that DNA, yeah? Scripture is, we're told, is living. It's alive. So DNA is good. Does that make sense? So that's how these metaphors um, work and for Pentecost. And in particular, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a whistle-stop tour. We're going to use a lot of Bible this morning. We're going to look at the story of Adam and Eve, Mount Sinai, and the crucifixion. Three key stories that with their DNA and the images and the symbolism in them, help us to then understand what happens at Pentecost. You ready? If you've got a Bible, fire it up, open up your phone, or it'll be on the screen. So let's read from Genesis 2. 
Now, in fact, I'm going to read, I should have read from Acts. Let me read from our main passage this morning. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then let's turn to the story of one of the stories of Adam and Eve. There's, we've got a Genesis 1 creation account, and some of you know there's another account of creation in Genesis 2. Um, and let me read that to you. Genesis 2, verses 4 to 9 and 20 to 22. This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up out from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food, and in the middle of the garden was the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So this account in Genesis, I'm not going to get into this morning, I'll skirt over it. Is this a literal account? Um, many Christians, you, to understand this passage, you don't need to believe that this was a literal account, that someone has taken a video on, on their camera phone and recorded it. It's, it's truth about God's work in creation distilled into a story to help us understand those truths. Um, I often, I will mention this a little bit because you might wrestle with, to, if, to understand this and believe this, do I have to believe it was a literal thing? If I asked you to tell the story of your family and sat you down, very quickly you would tell me this and this and this and this, and then a family member would go, no, that wasn't quite what happened, that happened first, and then that happened, and then that. And if I then said, have anyone had disagreements in their families about what happened when in their stories? And if I then said, well, all your family stories are a bunch of lies, you'd go, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, so one of the ways to think about stories is they are truer. There are truths here that are truer. This is not a history book for a court case. This is truth about God's work in creation, that there is a God, and he made the world, and he made the ground, and he made the trees, and then he made Adam, and he made Eve, human beings. That's what this story tells us. Yeah? Whether it took six million years or six weeks, I don't care. But God did it. That's the truth of this story. Now, God is playing in the mud, scoops up some dirt, and you notice in this story there is no rain, by the way. When does rain first appear? When? Noah. <laughs> Water wells up from the ground, streams. There is no rain at this point in God's creation, and God is playing. God scoops up and he takes clay, he takes the dirt and the water and he molds from the ground. And I love this, you know the James Webb telescope goes up into the sky, if you haven't followed that online, and looks back and we see billions of galaxies. And God takes the substance of his creation 
and brings it together and goes, I'm going to now make the best thing ever in creation, a human being. Now in the story, the human being is not fully human and alive until something happens. What has to happen to the human? God breathes. So here's a really key thing, breath. Okay? Remember these images, breath. Human beings are not human until they have the breath of God in them. It takes the divine to make us human. That's what makes humans amazing. We carry the breath of God in us. Every human being. So this breath happens. Now, did you notice in the creation story what God creates next after Adam and Eve in Genesis 2? What appears next? Any of you remember? Begins with a T. This is not Wordle. Ends with an S. But it is five letters. T-R-E-E-S. By the way, my wife and I, we do Wordle at night. It drives us mad sometimes. We do it. We can't compare. And one of us will go, yes! Got it in three. And the other one's like, oh, I can't do this. It's so hard, you'll never get it. Anyway, trees. Trees would be a good Wordle, wouldn't it? God makes trees. What do trees do? Without trees, we'd all be dead. Plants. You learn, don't you, at school. We breathe out carbon dioxide, and what do trees do? They suck it in, and what do they breathe out? Oxygen. That we breathe in. And if you look in commentaries, one of the amazing things is before anyone understood photosynthesis, but God did, he makes trees. He breathes into human beings who start breathing, and then there are trees. And the trees breathe in what we breathe, and they continue. One of the ways to understand the tree of life in the story of the Garden of Eden is that we were meant to be, human beings were meant to remain in continual relationship with God, breathing him in and breathing out and breathing him in. And that's what the tree of life symbolizes. So the, the fall and Adam and Eve being removed from the Garden of Eden is being removed from the breath of God. Are you with me with these images? To receive the breath of God. This will come up later. Um, and it was good that Adam wasn't going to be alone. And there's a word that's in the, in the Aramaic here, Ezer, E-Z-E-R. It's used 21 times in the Bible, 14 times it directly about God and his creativity. So uh, people through history have taken the Genesis story and used it to denigrate women and say that women are just helpers and they're less. And it takes a man to make a woman. That is not what the Aramaic said here. And it's not how Jews understood this. God himself reaches into the side of Adam in this image here, breaks his ribs, reaches into his side, and somehow removes from Adam. I love C.S. Lewis said, if we ever met Adam, even if Adam was a real person, we would not recognize him. He might have been human, but he's not human in the way we know because he's not yet fully human because God has to reach into Adam and create woman. And by the way, and it's a topic that we're not going to go into today. God makes gender. Eve is not a clone of Adam. Adam is not fully Adam until Eve has been created. God takes the proto-human and we get Adam and Eve as he reaches into the side of Adam. Eve is not subordinate, but she is equal. And God splits the Adam and concedes. Um, I love a little phrase from a preaching commentary. Out of the side is conceived a bride. The bride comes from the side. 
Stay with that image. You're going to keep all these images in your head, yeah? Breath, trees, dirt, soil, ribs, side. <sighs> Mount Sinai. Let's turn to Mount Sinai, Exodus 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently at the, and the, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Now, if you've got a new, uh, an NIV Bible, it'll have a little letter C next to it about at the end of that last sentence and, it's, it, and referencing different ways to translate the language there because it's difficult to translate. More literally, it is that you've got Mount Sinai. Moses is about to get the Ten Commandments. Anybody remember that? We had Sam last week with the visual aid, didn't we, with Moses? The Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, the presence of God, smoke, fire... And actually, in the Aramaic, it, it doesn't say that God spoke to Moses. What it really says is that God entered Moses, is a more literal translation. Mount Sinai, the covenant, smoke, fire. Now, Pentecost, at the time of Pentecost, is a celebration of what's called the Festival of Weeks. And one of the things it celebrates is harvest. Another thing for the Jewish people Pentecost celebrated, the Festival of Weeks, was from the receiving of the covenant of the, of, of the Ten Commandments from Moses. And it was 50 days, this festival. So the day of Pentecost is the last day of the Festival of Weeks. Are you all with me so far? Yeah? Why 50 days? Some of you might know this. Numbers are very important in the Bible. Yeah? Seven was the number of perfection. So for something to be extra perfect, you had seven times seven, 49. If you wanted to take something that was more than perfection times perfection, you add one to it, and you get 50. 50 is a very important number in the Old Testament. It's about the year of Jubilee. Jubilee, freedom, the kingdom of God. 50, the festival of weeks, 50 days. There's been 50 days in the run-up to this. Now, again, I do want to mention about, some people get excited about numbers in the Bible, and I think they misunderstand them. There are patterns in the Bible, just as we have patterns in life. Some of you may have had this. I know Brian has. My wife's having it at the minute. She keeps looking at a clock, and it will say exactly 22, 22. Every single time. She'll look at it will like, you know, 13, 13. And yes, there are patterns, and the numbers are important in the 50 weeks, but it's not because God's a numerologist. It's not because he says, oh, this will be fun for them all. I'll just build in all these numbers that are a nice coincidence. It's just that the things of life with God repeat, and the images repeat. And one of the ways that God gets our attention is, he goes, do you get it? Seven times seven plus one, 50. This, is, this should not surprise you that 50 days, what's, Pentecost is what? 50 days since what happened for the disciples? 50 days since Jesus ascended. Jesus has ascended. 50 days later. God is saying, you know the DNA thing? God is saying, do you get it yet? It's hardwired. Everything that's come before is growing and being birthed and manifesting now. There is an incubation period of 50 days of gestation between Christ going away 
and the body of the church is about to be born. Christ says, I've got to go away. Do you remember we were back in John? It's better I go away so that I can come back and I can do with everyone what I've been doing with you. The body of Christ is about to be born on Pentecost, 50 days of gestation. All these images here, image upon image upon image. Jesus appears in the New Testament. Uh, We know he's in the wilderness and Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. The first sermon he preaches, he quotes from Isaiah and and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news, sight to the captives, freedom to the oppressed. The kingdom is at hand, the jubilee. Jesus was about jubilee. This is it. Jesus is saying, I am it. I am everything in the little slice of DNA that's gone up until now. I am it. I am the fulfillment of it. And the breath of God himself is upon me. The kingdom is at hand. And the third image, the crucifixion. Adam and Eve, Mount Sinai, crucifixion. Now, crucifixion was a very slow death. Uh, But if you know about crucifixion or have looked at it or ever had anyone preaching it, you might know that Jesus died very, very quickly, unusually so. Most people would take many days to die, and they had to check that Jesus was dead. And Do you remember how they checked that he was really dead? Shoved a spear in his side and pulled it out. And what would happen is if you were really dead, once you died in crucifixion, your, body, your blood would start to separate and water in your blood would, would come out. It's one of the ways they knew you were really dead. You couldn't fake it. If blood came out, they knew your heart was still beating. Water comes out, oh, your heart stopped. Um, there's a medical process I forget the name of. But what does John 19 tell us? Well, let's read John 19. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, and they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. One of the ways to make sure that people died quickly in crucifixion was you break their legs. The painful bit of crucifixion was, you try to imagine it, you you can't imagine it, that to breathe, you would have to stand up to catch your breath. Have any of you done DIY? It's really bad for you. Sometimes when I've done DIY, like reaching for hedge trimming above a shed the other day, after a while of having my hands up, I find it hard, I can't catch my breath because your your lungs get stretched. Now on the cross, people would be struggling to breathe, so you had to stand on your feet that were nailed and breathe. And that's why it was excruciating. So to hasten someone's death, you break their legs. They'd suffocate. And that's what they were asking in this. But Jesus, it seems, is already dead. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, found he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Now you might ask, well, why didn't they just get on and do it? It's a lot of work to break someone's legs, by the way. A lot of work. Much easier to stick a spear in someone and see if they're dead than go to the hard work in the baking sunshine. and break. That shows you how brutal crucifixion was. And instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And then there are so many other images here. There is, I can't read all the scriptures. There are prophecy in the Old, Old Testament about the Messiah coming and, having his, and, and not one bone in his body being broken. To, again, the fulfillment of images here that's taking place with Jesus. Water. Well, I want to read a couple of verses to you. Um, actually, let me read John 10, verse 18. This is Jesus. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. 
And commentators, the early church fathers, the disciples and Christians in history have believed that Jesus knew this was going to happen. He volunteered for it, took part in it. Nobody took his life. He gave his life freely. It was given, and he entered into crucifixion. And in actual fact, we believe, and I believe this from commentators, that one of the reasons Christ died was not so much the physical process he went through, but was the spiritual, existential, emotional bearing of the weight of our sin and our brokenness and our separation before God. That's what killed him. And Christ literally died of a broken heart. And he surrenders himself to God. His heart, he has heart failure that leads to this issuing of water from his side. It's one of those wonderful moments where something in scripture shows us something that medically is true. If some people do have broken heart syndrome and they'll die of heart failure. And what will happen medically is that they will start to have water separate from their blood as their heart starts to fail because of the brokenness of emotional pain that they face. Jesus lays down his own life. Water. Well, let's look at water. Zechariah 13. Are you still with me? This is exciting. We're getting to the culmination. Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Springs. Fountains, water. Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. One of the other ways that the church has understood the water from the side of Christ is as a spring, is as in water. Water from the Son of God, from the second Adam, to bring us to life. Are you all with me with all these images? Image upon image upon image. Now, when Jesus dies on the cross, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, his new body that he's going to return to, is conceived, but it's not born. It's born on Pentecost. But in the gestation process, in between, between Christ's death and Pentecost, Jesus appears. We went through John. Any of you remember those times when Jesus appeared? Now, when Jesus appeared to the disciples and his baby church... The, the little fetus that was incubating that was going to become the church, what did Jesus do to help the gestation of this group of people that were going to become the church? What does he do to them? He breathes on them. He's like, there's baby me. Life. Adam. The second Adam. This is going to be my new body. These people are my body. You might wonder, why did Jesus breathe on them? He is breathing. It's the God of Genesis 2. Breathing life. Incubation. John 20, verse 22. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then we have Jubilee, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, the birth of the church. You've got those three stories and images. I would encourage you to go back and reread them. Yeah? So, let's get back to Pentecost. We've got this background. Let's quote John the Baptist here. Matthew 3, verse 11. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Oh, the fire's coming. The Holy Spirit's coming, the fire's coming. Jesus in Acts chapter 1 tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem 
And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells the disciples to wait to receive the Holy Spirit. And suddenly there's an explosion of images in Acts 2. There is wind, the huge sound of a mighty rushing wind. And there is fire that's split into tongues. There are people speaking multiple languages. Again, commentators think from what's included in Acts, at least 15 languages are spoken in Acts. And everyone who's there hears everything in their own language. It's another little aside. God brings unity, but not with conformity in Acts, as he speaks to people and blesses them. And words are spoken here. And in Acts 2, we've read at the beginning here, there's wind and sound and fire. Now, here's the bit. I want to mess with your heads a little bit today, if you've never seen this. And it did with mine, reading some commentaries. Was there wind in the story? Was there wind? Did Peter's hair get blown all over the place? What does it actually say about the wind? It says there was a sound. Actually, in the original Greek language, it tells us, it doesn't say that there was a mighty rushing wind. It says there was a sound like mighty rushing wind. And, and what the church has believed in history, and especially the early church fathers, is that they were like, what's that sound? It sounds like a mighty rushing wind. There's the sound of a mighty rushing wind. It doesn't say they were blown all over the place, but there was a sound. Sound is important. Remember, images are important. How many senses do we have? Five. What are they? Taste, touch, smell, sight, sound. The first thing that happens is in this prayer meeting is that they hear something. Hearing is important to understand what happens next. By the way, our sight is, is, is amazing that human beings have, but it's also one of the things that's easily deceived. Did you know that? Did you know one of the most reliable senses we have is hearing? The way that hearing works, it's less open to deception. If people are asked to recall a sound, they usually recall it quite accurately. A sound is much more accurate for our senses. Our sight can easily be deceived. So the first thing that happens here is there is a sound. People are looking around, they're hearing but not seeing. And some of you might know this. What's the last sense when we all die that scientists know is the last sense that stops working? Hearing. Even when human beings are not conscious, which is why talking to someone who is in the process of dying People can, we can still respond because hearing continues to work. Hearing is very, so this is one of those moments in scripture where it's there for a reason. We heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind, is what they said. We heard. Hearing is so important. There's this vibration and there is a sound. And back to Genesis. When God brought creation into being, what's What's the sense that we are told in which creation is birthed? God, what did God do? Spoke his breath. Let there be. Oh, shouldn't surprise us that when the spirit of God that was the breath of God that was spoken over creation turns up on Pentecost, that people hear first. 
hearing. We can trust our ears. Now, Romans 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from... Say again. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Have you ever wondered why some of the people in the New Testament, with their own eyes, saw people raised from the dead and healed, and they still would not believe in Jesus Christ? Some of us think, if I had more miracles, I'd believe more. But we often don't. But how many of you have had God speak one word to you about who you are? I bet a lot of you would say, there was a time and the Lord said this to me. Because when God speaks and he speaks a word, in fact, there's a a passage in James that I love the most in, 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 in James 1 about the man who looks at himself in the mirror and sees who he was meant to be and forgets who he is. It's actually a word from Genesis. To get a glimpse with our eyes of who God has spoken that we should be in creation. The power of God speaking to us. Our word is full of words at the minute, isn't it? One word. Faith comes by hearing. Now, then there's this tongues of fire. Cloven tongues. Anyone got a King James Bible? In the translation, they a bit more literal, cloven tongues. The word cloven there is, 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 a, is a strange word because it has multiple meanings. It can mean cloven, like, you know, little, I don't know, a goat would have a cloven hoof, wouldn't it? So it was cloven, like cloven feet. So, again, commentators aren't sure the word cloven can mean like feet with a split toe, but cloven literally can mean separated. And again, I had a look at some commentaries, and it seems that there are two other fire that descended as tongues of fire. Now, there's something. The fire that appeared, we use the word, and it's the same in the Greek as we use in English, like a tongue. And what do we use our tongues for? Tasting yummy food, but speaking. So these tongues were either maybe split, a fire here and a fire here, or like this above. Again, if you look at paintings and images, they'll often depict them sometimes as cloven this way or cloven this way. We don't know. We don't know. Distinct flames. What happens to Jeremiah's tongue when God wants him to do something? What does God do to Jeremiah? What does he do to part of Jeremiah's body? Can anyone remember their Bibles? It's a little Bible test at this point. God touches Jeremiah's tongue. What does he touch it with? A hot coal. Tongues, fires, images. Pentecost, the wind and the fire. Now, I'm going to land this. So one way to understand the tongues of fire, back to Mount Sinai, and fire and smoke, Moses received two tablets, letter and law and carry them down. And this has now all been fulfilled in Jesus, and it might be that the Holy Spirit appears as two tongues of fire, as two new tablets for the church and God's people. And that we no longer cling to stone tablets because the law of God is now written where? In our hearts. I like that, Lucy's like, in here, in my heart, it's in there. Well, 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 3, 
You show that you were a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Or if cloven, then that's an image of feet and motion. And we know that the church is born and it immediately moves and goes out into the world. To be filled with the spirit is to be set on fire and there's this image of, of motion. Um, we know in Ephesians, um, we were reading it this morning in the prayer meeting. Um, and feet fitted with the readiness. Breath, life, movement are all things of God. And the mission of the church is not to stand still but move forward. And it shouldn't surprise us, again, last image here, Peter, when he stands up, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is the Peter who's denied Jesus, had breakfast with Jesus, stands up and gives one of the greatest sermons ever because it bursts the church. And, and we're not going to read it, but Peter tells the story of Jesus's as the fulfillment of many things, including the life of someone very important in the Old Testament, King David. Now, in Jewish tradition, it was believed that David was born, guess when? At Pentecost. And David died, guess when? At Pentecost. It's not in the Bible, but it's an ancient Jewish tradition, the idea that King David. So again, you imagine you've got a bunch of Jewish people invoking David. This is the fulfillment of all of these things. This is what is happening. So, so what? Was that fascinating? Go and read Acts 2 again. I, this, I don't normally preach like this, but these images, and, and to read Acts and trust the images and go and look for them. So what does that mean? Well, I have an application as I was praying. I said, Lord, what does this mean for us? And I'll start with a question. Who wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Who wouldn't want to be? Well, actually, probably lots of us don't want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, many of us want the Holy Spirit, but who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the breath of God who brings life to creation, who mobilizes us, who brings the things that God has made us to be into life and into the world. Who wouldn't want that? Well, lots of us don't. Do you know how we contain fires in a house? Where do we have fires in a house where we contain them? What do we call it? A fireplace. A lot of us treat the Holy Spirit like a fireplace. I want to turn him on when I'm a bit cold. And when I've had enough, I want to turn it off. But what I don't want is that fire to set fire to me and my house. What is the Holy Spirit in Scripture? Is he a fire in our fireplace that we turn on when we want? No. He is a wildfire. He is a fire who, when he comes, burns up, consumes, and brings the God of the cosmos into our lives and our world. And he can't. Who said an amen? There's an Amen. Who wants that in their lives? I bet if a lot of us were honest, we'd be like, I'm a bit busy at the minute for that. I've got a holiday coming up. Could the Holy Spirit turn up after I've had my holiday? Or got through COVID? Or got through the inflation hikes and whatever's going to happen? You know, really, you see, what's at stake here is something massive about why we don't get filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and I want to use another word in the metaphor um, here, and it's of firewalls. And if you know about firewalls, you've got a computer. You see, one of the things that I think we do is, and Scripture says again and again is, we build firewalls that stop the Holy Spirit coming. And firewalls are about control. 
I'm not going to let you in. And one of the reasons we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, he's not a wildfire that sets us on fire, is we want to keep things under control. In all of those images, is, it's not just the images. The images are about the story of God in creation. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is for your story to become part of God's story in creation. Did you know that? Not to make you feel good, not to get you a nice job, not to make you feel happy when you're sad, but for your life itself to be in the second Adam where you are so human and so alive in God's creation that people look at you and you get to the point when you die and if you're conscious of it and go, oh my goodness, I was, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here, are you with me? So to be filled with the Holy Spirit, so let me finish with a couple of stories and then we're gonna pray. Let's start with Nicky Gumbel. Many of you know Nicky Gumbel, leading HTB, retirement after decades there. Nicky Gumbel heading up Alpha. What a lot of you might not know is Nicky Gumbel's backstory, and he's shared it recently. I didn't know this. Um, uh, Alpha was started in 1977 at HTB Church in London, and it was, it was a course, not as an evangelism course, but for believers. And, um, and it was, you know, quite limited, and not the thing that it is now. Alpha is, Alpha is global everywhere. Catholics, Methodists, Baptists, Pentecostals, independent churches. It's the most significant place that has the largest number of people become Christians of anything in the last 20, 30 years in the world. Nicky Gumbel was a barrister until something happened to him. He met John Wimber, the founder of our church movement. He's at a conference and the Holy Spirit comes on Nicky Gumbel. Nicky Gumbel loses control of himself. If you've ever heard Nicky Gumbel speak, it's hard to imagine this upright, posh, well-to-do Englishman who loses it in front of everybody. He is crying, he is shaking, he is screaming. In fact, he's making so much noise because the Holy Spirit has fallen on him that he's asked to be taken out of the room. And as he's taken out of the room, John Wimber who was the founder of our church movement, God speaks to John Wimber and he says, there's something on that man for, Brian, remind me, because I know you know the story. An exceptional gift in helping people meet Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Nicky Gumbel goes on to be a priest, his first priesthood at HTB. Never mind his faithfulness in serving all the way through for decades. Does his curacy and he gets charged with taking on Alpha. And one of the things that Nicky Gumbel, who's had this experience, he's lost, he's lost it in front of everyone, he knows something now about the Holy Spirit, and he introduces something into the Alpha course that wasn't there before. And any of you know what it was? The Holy Spirit Day. And people go on a course, and they encounter the Holy Spirit. And what happens to Alpha? What does God do with Alpha? It explodes, global, around the world. Do you see what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit, one man heard about the Holy Spirit and decided to give up control. And because of that, tens upon tens of thousands of people are Christians. Isn't that awesome? And he could have gone in that meeting, yeah, not today, Lord. Wouldn't the world be a lot poorer without Alpha? 
I've got a Holy Spirit story. My youth pastor did a little Bible study on being filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gave it to me. It was New Year's Day, and I got it out, and I was a brand new Christian, been a Christian about two months, and at the end of it, there was a prayer. To pray. So I, did the, I read the Bible passages. I'd never, I'd never had a Bible until I became a Christian at 17. Read it, and there was a bit about being prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and guess what happened? The Holy Spirit turned up. It's one of the most terrifying things that ever happened to me in my life. I was like, and you know what I did? I thought, I need to understand this, but I also put my trainers on and I sprinted to the door of my youth pastor. I was moved by the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, I'm not, I don't know what this is. I didn't, it didn't say at the end, and don't be surprised if something happens. And I knocked on his door. He was very bleary-eyed and he still remembers it because he'd been up very late for a New Year's Eve party. And I said, he goes, what is it? I said, that Holy Spirit thing, something happened to me. And I sat down, and I'm so glad that when I described to him what happened, and he looked at me, he said, I didn't know something would happen if you prayed that prayer. <laughs> and he goes, I guess that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved me, came upon me. The Holy Spirit moves us. We have our rules of order for life, don't we? We have our story. And brothers and sisters, this is my plea as we finish. There is a story out there that says, be in control. It's your life. You make of it what you want. You go to work, have a nice life, look forward to your next holiday, try and avoid as much pain as possible, and that's a good life. And that's the story that's out there. And God has a very different story. He says, Cameron, Dan, Dan, Cassie, Drew. It's like a memory test. Alex, Jules and Corinna. He goes, that's not your story. Your story is the Adam and Eve story. Your story is the Mount Sinai story. Your story is the Jesus on the cross story. Your story, if you want to be part of it, is to join in this and let me pour my Holy Spirit out over you and for you to know what it is like for me to do this in your life. Now, who wants that story? You see, when you say, who wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what we're asking for. So what we're going to do now is the worship team are going to come back. We're going to worship. And then we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Let's stand. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that Jesus, you are risen, that you are here. And we pray as we sing now that these images and truths from your word would be watered and flourish. You'd breathe on us and we would receive from you. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.